0: Romans 4, verses 16 through 23. For this reason it is by faith, that it might be in accordance with grace, in order that the promise may be certain to all the descendants, and not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, A father of many nations have I made you in the sight of him whom he believed, even God, Who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which did not exist. In hope against hope he believed in order that he might become a father of many nations according to that which he had been spoken. So so shall your descendants be. And without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body. Now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. And yet, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what he had promised, he was able also to perform.
1: Father, you have mercifully met us in this hour. And I want you to stay and continue to work now as we continue to worship over your word. This is a great word from your inspired apostle concerning faith and promise and glory. And unless you come and open our eyes and tune our ears, cut the calluses off of our souls... We will be dead to these glorious things and they will have no saving, sanctifying, rejoicing, healing, comforting, reconciling, emboldening, sweetening, humbling effect upon our lives. And we want them to have that kind of effect. So come. Establish your presence here now in power over this Word, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This is our second week on this text. Verse 16 is where we focused last week, and so I want to draw your attention there. We talked about the faith-grace-certainty connection. Let's just read it, you'll see it. For this reason, it is by faith. Justification is by faith. The promise is by faith. In order that it may be in accordance with grace. Faith, grace. So that the promise will be guaranteed certain. Faith, grace, certainty. To all the descendants. Meaning... Both Jews who believe and Gentiles who have the faith of Abraham. So there's the faith, grace, certainty connection. And what we did last week was zero in on the grace, certainty connection and talk about why it is that grace guarantees the promise. And there were two reasons. Number one... Looking backward in the text, we saw that grace overrides our demerit as we approach God. So here we come, sinners, into the presence of a holy God. What chance is there that we will not be incinerated? No chance, except for one thing, asbestos, called grace. Wrapping us up in the righteousness of God overriding our demerit and welcome, welcoming us into the presence of a holy God in love and acceptance and forgiveness. That's called grace. And without it, there'd be no guarantee of any promise. So that's the first reason why grace leads to guarantee. Here's the second one. Grace is not only the override, we saw, of our demerit, it is a power to bring into being out of nothing what doesn't exist and to bring life where there's only spiritual deadness. And we saw that in verse 17. You see it there? God gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. And what he has in his mind here is Isaac. Abraham is 99 years old. Sarah is 90. She's been barren all her life. Has a dead womb, it says in verse 19. They're both beyond child marrying fertility years. And God says, Ishmael is not the son. Hagar is not the wife. Sarah is the wife. Abraham's the husband. I will create seed. And that's a picture of how all children of promise come into being. We saw that from Galatians chapter 4. Everybody in this room is a child of promise, who's going to inherit the promise, comes into being that way. Meaning, human resources can't make Christians. God makes Christians. God, according to verse 17, gives life to the dead, calls into being that which does not exist, namely a life of faith. And so the last thing we saw last week was, what is it in my heart that accords with this kind of grace which guarantees the promise that I will be an heir of the world? And the answer is, one state of my heart, in its primary righteousness-embracing power, one state of my heart accords with grace, namely faith. It is by faith in order that it might accord with grace so that the promise might be certain. So faith, grace, certainty. Your only hope for a certain saved future is not your fickle will, but God's sovereign grace that raises the dead and brings out of nothing in your dead heart what you need to inherit the promise. And sustains you there according to the new covenant promises in Jeremiah 32 40 and numerous other places. Now, today, my question is this Why is it that God has ordained for faith to be that which secures the promise for me? Why not some other grace? Why not some other thing besides faith? What is it about faith? Now, we've seen three answers to this question already. I'll name them and then we look at one more today. Why faith? Why is faith what God has ordained to receive the promise that we will be heirs of the world? Reason number one, chapter 3, verse 27 faith excludes boasting. And God hates boasting. What is become of boasting? It is excluded. By what law? A law of works? No, a law of faith. Faith excludes boasting. That's reason number one why God ordains faith to be the means of the inheritance. Reason number two. If justification were by law or works the promise would be nullified because the law brings wrath. Verse 14. Reason number three. The reason he has ordained faith to be the means of our inheritance is because faith accords with grace. Verse 16. Now, what's the new fourth reason today? It's found in verse 20. Yet... With respect to the promise of God, Abraham did not waver in unbelief, but he grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. So reason number four, why God ordains faith to be the means of inheriting, is that faith glorifies God. Let's read it again. Make sure you see the connections. Yet with respect to the promise of God, this is verse 20, Abraham did not waver in unbelief, but he grew strong in faith, thus giving glory to God. Thomas Watson was a Puritan pastor 350 years ago in England, and he wrote a good book called The Body of Divinity. And in it he asked this question, why should faith justify more than any other grace? And here's his answer. Because of God's purpose. He has appointed this grace to be justifying. And he has done it because faith is a grace that takes man off of himself and gives all honor to Christ And to free grace. And then he quotes our text, Romans 4.20. Strong in faith, giving glory to God. So let's think about this. I hope you know, I think most of you know, giving God glory does not mean adding to God's glory from your little deposit. It doesn't mean improving upon God's gloriousness. Doesn't mean mean heightening His own perfections or worth or value or beauty. What it means is calling attention to God's glory, showing it to be what it really is, and what is it? What is the glory of God? We talk about it. What is it? And I'll give you three phrases that are the best I can do, biblically, to try to get a handle on the ineffable. The glory of God is the greatness of His beauty. Or, the glory of God is the shining out of all of His excellencies. Or the glory of God is the radiance of all his perfections. So I grope. I grope for uh, places to point. So let me go back to Thursday. Remember Thursday afternoon? Thursday's my day off. I try to take a day off. And I took Thursday off, most of it anyway. And uh, Thursday, therefore, is a date day with my woman, (laughs) named Noel. And uh, we don't spend a lot of money, so we went to a little Mexican place, and on that day, perhaps the last day off where they'll do this this fall, the patio was open. And so we took our burrito and fajita, and we went out and sat down at this little round white table under the sky and I put my legs up in the chair, there are four chairs, so I said let's try to use them all (laughs) (laughs) and the breeze was cool and the sun was warm and I looked up and I thought to myself now if I were going to build a roof over the city of Minneapolis, about 50 miles up, and paint it, that's the way I'd make it look. Only it's there for free. No effort on any part of anybody. And painted more beautifully with these white wisps against that deep blue. And have you noticed? That if you look straight up, it's deep blue, and if you look at an angle, it's light blue. Have you ever noticed that? There's a reason for that. It's thinner straight up, and the big black is closer. And I thought of Psalm 19. The heavens are telling the glory of God. The heavens are telling the glory of God. Here's another glorious human being. Thank you. Thank you. One of my favorite people. The name's David Livingston. Can you believe that? <laughs> glory. I saw it, I heard it. I felt it on my skin, and in my wife. It is undefinable, but you know it when you see it. The day was glorious. The aim of every person in this room, as God has designed you and all other things, is to glorify God. Romans 11.36 For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. The one state of the human heart beneath all other beautiful states that can be born from it of the human heart that gives glory to God is faith. Romans 4.20 He grew strong in his faith, giving glory to God. Faith makes God be seen as glorious, like he really is Now I ask, why is this? Why does faith give glory to God? And before I answer that, let me stress this. It is so crucial for you to know this is why you exist. You know what's wrong with the world? There's one basic thing wrong with the world. And it's defined... In Romans 1.23, they exchange the glory of God for lesser things. That's what's wrong with the world. Every human being is created to display the glory of God. That's why you exist this week past... The population of planet Earth on Wednesday afternoon passed six billion. At least that's what I read. I know what every one of them is on planet Earth for. Because the Bible makes crystal clear God created every one of them for his glory. To display His glory. To refract out into the world through their unique personhood, His glory. And what's wrong with the world? Hardly anybody does this. We have have seen the glory of God in the heavens. We have known the glory of God in our consciences. And we have traded it away for a bowl of oatmeal, like Esau. That's what's wrong with the world. Is it any doubt that the world goes haywire when the vast majority of the people don't do what they were created to do? Human beings don't function right when they're not doing what they're created to do. It is a marvel to me. It is an absolute marvel to me that there is not total anarchy and chaos in Minneapolis because of the small percentage of the population who live for the glory of God. There is one reason why there is not massive East Timorese-like looting in downtown Minneapolis this morning. There's only one main reason. Common grace. All we need is a little shaking here. The IDS tumbles over. Policemen go on strike. And the real Minneapolis would show itself in a minute. Just like it's showing itself. Every place where the powers that can bring consequences to bear on looting shows itself. We're a squeaky clean city because we have certain traditions which are owing to God. Very Lutheran, very Catholic, little teeny bit of Baptists. And those traditions have enough good in them and enough truth in them that a cap is being kept on the lid here or on the volatile sea of sin in this city and there is relative order which is a marvelous common grace but you were created for the glory of God and God is in the business now with those who are headed for Turkey and those who are headed for work tomorrow morning in filling the earth with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, Habakkuk 2.14. God is reclaiming his creation. He will reclaim it. Those who will not have it, who will only boast in themselves instead of giving him all glory, will be excluded from the new heavens and the new earth. So it matters. It really, really matters. If you don't live for the glory of God, if you don't get up in the morning and think for the glory of God, and lunch for the glory of God, and come home for the glory of God, and go to bed for the glory of God, if you don't function that way, so that the glory of God is the reason for your being and the governing of all your choices, so that you can say with the Apostle, whether I eat or whether I drink or whatever I do, I do all to the glory of God. Don't be surprised if your life is a shadow of the substance God designed it to be. Anybody feel like a shadow in this room? Instead of substance. I like substance people. People with substance. They're not a shadow of another substance. They're substance. There's something there to get a hold of spiritually. It's a deep, powerful, uranium-like thing. And those are the people who are passionate for the glory of God. Whether they're the quiet type or the explosive type, doesn't make any difference. But their substance, not to live for the glory of God, is to be a shadow of the substance you were meant to have in God not to live for the glory of God is to be an echo of the music you were designed to make anybody feel like an echo instead of music being played out of your soul toward God toward angels toward the devil music makes the devil flee i've been involved in one big time exorcism and it was singing that drove the devil out not to live for the glory of God is to be a residue of the impact you were meant to have in this world anybody here feel like a residue of an impact you don't have to be a shadow an echo a residue If you become thrilled with the glory of God above computers, and sports, and clothes, and money, and profession, and approval, you know the kind of people who are substantial people. They don't live second-hand lives looking over their shoulder to wonder what people are thinking. They don't care what people think. They are so substantial in themselves and in their relationship to the living God, they let the chips fall and say what needs to be said and do what needs to be done because God is their substance and he's within and his glory is one day going to satisfy their hearts like it says in Romans 5 we were justified by faith therefore we have peace with God and having been justified we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God if you don't love the glory of God <laughs> you can't even hope as a Christian because that's all you're going to get And if you don't love the glory of God now, don't plan on heaven. It won't be heaven to you. So many people talk about heaven as a longer golf course. Or the car they never could get. Or mom. My mother's with Jesus. She is not heaven to me. That'll be icing on the cake of glory. So I ask again, why does faith do this? Why does faith give glory to God? Here's the answer, verse 21. Because faith is being fully assured of what God has promised Fully assured that he is able to perform it. You see that in verse 21? Being fully assured that what God had promised, he is able to perform. And the harder the promise is to fulfill, the more glory God gets when you believe He will fulfill it. Which is why verses 19 and 20 draw out how hard it was for God to fulfill this promise to Abraham. Let's read verse 19. Without becoming weak in faith, Abraham contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old. And he contemplated the deadness of Sarah's womb. So the fulfillment of a child called Isaac, child of promise, is impossible. Hundred-year-old men don't have babies. And women who are barren with dead wombs, who are 99, don't have babies. So it's over. It's history. There's no human possibility. Now, how do you make God look good at that moment? When God says, you're going to have a son. Next year, his name will make it Isaac. You and this old woman, you're going to have a son. How do you make God look really good at that moment? Answer, you believe him. You believe him. Yet, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. Okay, children... You're all in Sunday school and you're not here. But you were here in the first service. And I was told by the adults that this was the one part of the sermon they understand anyway. And so I will tell you adults this situation that I described for the children in the first hour. Got your attention, children? Listen up for five minutes here. I want you children to understand what I mean when I say faith glorifies God. Okay, here's the situation. Swimming pool. Backyard somewhere, 20 by 40. Typical run-of-the-mill backyard swimming pool. And you're three years old, and you're standing on the edge, and your daddy's in the water. And he's standing out about three feet. And he holds out his arms, not quite as far as you'd like him to hold them out toward you. And he says, Talitha, jump. I'll catch you. Now, kids... How do you make daddy look really good at that moment? That's glorified. How do you glorify your daddy? How do you make him look really good? And it isn't by saying "Uh," and backing up. That makes him look bad. Because either you're saying With your little dance, he can't catch me. He's incompetent. Even if you don't know what the word incompetent means. Or you're saying, he's tricky and he won't catch me. Or you're saying, this is not a good idea because I don't want to get wet anyway. Which means his command is not wise. So either he is incompetent or mean or unwise. And you make him look really bad when you don't jump. So the way to make your daddy look good is to believe him. And believe that his ideas are good ideas. So jump. Faith, trusting your daddy, trusting God... Makes God look really good. Like he is loving in having good ideas for you. And that he's competent and strong and able to do what he promised. And that he's wise and able and willing to do them. You make God look good when you trust him. And you make him look really bad. You insult him when you don't trust his promises. Anybody here want to go into eternity insulting God through unbelief? We're not done, kids. Don't don't leave me. Here's Here's another piece of it. Your daddy looks even better when the promise he makes is harder to keep when you trust him. The harder it is to fulfill a promise that God makes, the more glorious he looks when you trust him for that hard promise. For example, here we are at the pool again. This time, your daddy's down at the shallow end on the deck. You alone are at the deep end near the diving board. And suddenly, under the fence, squirms a very growly, mean-looking, teeth-bearing dog. One of these funny-looking kind that look like all muscle and teeth. And he's moving towards you, and you don't have any idea. You're four years old this time, big enough to hop up on the diving board, which is where you go right away. And this dog is moving toward you. And you back up to the end of the diving board. And this dog puts his paws up on the diving board and crouches like he's going to jump right up there. And at that moment, your daddy, standing at the other end, sees what's happening. And he says, Aver, jump in the water. I'll get you. Now, how do you make your daddy look really good there? This is nine feet deep. I cannot swim. My dad is 40 feet away. How can you get me? You make him look really good by jumping in the water as the dog comes towards you. And almost as soon as you hit that water, you feel his hands under your armpits and his arm go over your shoulder and hold you there as he treads water while somebody chases a dog away and you never dreamed he could dive so flat and swim so fast but he can so how do you glorify God you trust his promises I'll get you I'll be there for you. And the harder it seems, the more glory he gets when you believe him. Let me point out one more obvious thing that's implicit so far in what we've said. The faith that glorifies God is a future-oriented faith. Not a past-oriented faith. It's all about promises here. Look at verse 18. In hope against hope, in hope against hope, Abraham believed. What's the relationship between hope and faith? How do hope and faith relate to each other? Answer? Faith is in a person. God, Christ. But think about it. I trust you, God. I trust you, Jesus. And the answer is... To do what? To do what? And when the answer of that is, to fulfill your promises, faith is indistinguishable from hope. If you trust a person to fulfill a promise, that trust and the hope in the promise are indistinguishable. Faith is hope, as Hebrews 11 says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Faith is future-oriented, justifying faith. The faith that justifies you, that makes you right with God, that receives the imputation of righteousness, is future-oriented faith in the promises of God. To which somebody might say, well, well, wait a minute. You're You're drawing that out of this text? Abraham is the model here. Abraham lived before Jesus. He had to look forward because Jesus hadn't come yet. Jesus has come now. He's way in the past, 2,000 years, and you're telling us we should keep looking forward? Why not? Shouldn't Abraham look forward to Jesus and we look back to Jesus? Why are you telling us that faith is fundamentally future-oriented? What about Jesus? What about the cross? What about the resurrection? Now, here's the way to think about that objection. It's half right. Here I stand... In 1999, between the coming of Messiah, who loved me, gave himself for me, rose triumphant over death and hell, and took his seat at the Father's right hand until he puts all of his enemies under his feet, and I stand here, and in front of me is all the trials and tribulations and dangers and potential messes of my life, plus judgment day, plus everlasting eternity. Uh, life or death what is faith here which way does faith look here and the answer is faith first looks back to Jesus and it takes a step back and says I believe God Almighty sent his son died for my sins raised him from the dead Covers All my sins imputes to me his righteousness and standing on that rock of past accomplished salvation faith looks steadfastly into the future whether it's the ending of this sermon in just a moment or whether it's five thousand ages of years on and faith on the basis of this assurance and security, believes the promises of God for this reality called future. And that's the way we live. We don't live with a past orientation. You live toward the future. That's where the promises of God will be fulfilled or not. And if they are not fulfilled, you're perishing. And if they are fulfilled, you're living. And it makes all the difference in the world whether they're going to be fulfilled or not. And therefore the question is, do you believe they're going to be fulfilled? That's justifying faith. It takes its stand on Jesus and the past work of God. And it looks and lives into the future. Where the promises of God will sustain you or not. Listen to the way Paul puts it in Romans 5, 9. Much more than having been justified by his blood. That's past. Shall we be saved from the wrath of God? That's future. So you look back and say, I've been justified. And you look forward and say, I will be saved. This grounds the promise. This is the promise. And faith lays hold on the promise on the ground Of the work of Christ. That's the way we live. Or Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him, past tense, gave him up for us all. Will he not now, therefore, freely with him, give us in the future all things? Do you believe that? That's the question. Do you believe that God will give you all things? If you believe that, you give glory to God. God does get glory by your taking your stand right here on the past work of Jesus Christ and saying, I believe God sent His only begotten Son into the world to die so that I might believe on Him. and He bore my sins and He took away my guilt and He removed my condemnation and He opened the gates of paradise. I believe that happened in the past. That glorifies God. But not nearly so much as standing there on that and believing also that he's going to fulfill every promise he ever made to you in the future. That glorifies God a lot more than affirming what happened in the past. It's both and, not either or. So let me close with an illustration of how this works itself out in our lives. God has made incredible promises to you. He has said, I will work everything together for your good. He has said, I will withhold no good thing from those who walk uprightly. He has said, I have begun a good work in you and I will complete it under the day of Christ. He has said... Uh, I will supply all your needs according to my riches and glory in Christ Jesus. He has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. I'll be with you to the end of the age. He has said, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I'll help you. I'll strengthen you. I'll hold you up with my victorious right hand. And a hundred more promises he has made to you. And if you believe them, you would be one radical, risk-taking, loving, non-self-absorbed person. For example... Do you remember the situation in Abraham's life where he and Lot almost came to blows, his nephew? They came into the promised land, God prospered all their uh, cattle and flocks, and one day the shepherds of one group got into a tangle with the shepherds of the other group, And Lot and Abraham came together and they said, we cannot live in the same place anymore. We have to divide up our riches and go to separate places. And in one of his best moments, he didn't have always good moments, but this was a good day for Abraham. In one of his best moments, he said to Lot, Lot, look to the east and the west and the north and the south and take whatever you want and I'll take what's left. Now, that's the way people act who trust the promises of God. Now, Lot did not have a good day this day. This is a bad day for Lot. He had good days. This is a bad day. Because Lot looked to the plush, green, well-watered Jordan Valley where there were two very powerful cities. Tell me their names. Sodom and Gomorrah. Bad choice, Lot. Bad choice. But he made it, and Abraham took the less well-watered plain. That's a great act of love, a great demonstration of the way we live when we're trusting the promises of God. And let me read you in closing what God said to Abraham. Five verses later... Abraham has not moved from the spot. And God says to Abraham, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are. Northward, southward, eastward, westward. For all the land which you see, I will give to you. Get it? All of it. Is Abraham's. That's why he could let Lot have anything he wanted. It's just a matter of time. Do you need to devote your life to the accumulation of money? Do you need to devote your life to the Accumulation of comforts and security and fame. You don't need any of it because it's all yours. It's just a matter of time and a very, very short time as it is until you inherit the world. Will not that produce a certain kind of freedom in you? Who are you going to deal with this afternoon? Let them take what they want. You don't need to fight this thing. So I close with this exhortation to you. Take your stand on Christ crucified. You step back, you take your stand. Then secondly, trust in the promises of God. Trust Him. Trust Him. Thirdly, do what He's calling you to do. I know that in this room right now, God is calling people to do some new things. A man came up to me at the end of the service, and I am done, I'm going to quit right now. A man came up to me at the end of the service. He said, I don't know how much details of his life I should give. Let's just say, I'm a doctor in a town that's not this town. My wife and I have very lucrative salaries. I've spent two terms in Bolivia with another doctor and he wants me to come and I would have to give up a huge income a wonderful secure home take my two children and go to live in Bolivia where I don't have any guaranteed income and I think God wanted me here this morning I know that's happening in this room right now Dozens of you. They may be small things. They may be big things. But this series of messages in the last three weeks is rooted in a kind of faith in Romans 4 that is absolutely life transforming. So let's bow in prayer and ask God to finish the work. Lord, as we go now... I ask that you would work. You have been working in this service. It was an unusual intensity about the worship time together here today. You have burdened people, I know, in prayer for special needs in this room right now. And I pray that you'd complete the work that you have begun. Stand on Christ. Trust His promise, do what He's called you to do, and give Him the glory. I'll stand here at the front. Elders and prayer team members will be here as well. So that if you want to pray about anything, we would be very, very happy to stay and pray with you.